talking Dice Masters, the beauty of the underlying mechanics, the hidden complexities, and the strategy, tactics, and decisions of competitive play. If you're just starting the game or have been here since the first set, hopefully you'll find something in this show that'll do you some good. So shake up your bag, reconnoiter your opponent, and get ready to roll. Vulturo Varasharish Maharja to Season 2, Episode 5 of Rollin' Thunder. Get out your notebooks, because if you want to up your game, you're going to want to listen closely this week. Sure, but you're making it sound like it's going to be super dry or something. Have you forgotten that this is an episode full of janky combos, infinite loops, and unseemly shenaniganery? Indeed it is. I guess I was just one of those kids who always enjoyed his time in school. That's not what my grandmother tells me. (laughs) Well, moving on to the show. I want to first send out a congratulations to our European counterparts, Trostna Nodonta in Slovakia, for what sounds... Sounds like an incredibly successful weekend of Dice Masters at the European Open. First off, we should acknowledge and thank Peter Cernak of Ariesco for hosting and supporting the game. Loads of countries, loads of people. Congratulations to our new European champion, Peter van de Velde out of the Netherlands. And a tip of the hat to the great James Bloor, who once again made it to the top table. Sounds like you both had a fun run of it. And that was no easy field, so hopefully this exultation properly conveys our admiration. What do you mean by sounds like? Did you have some undercover agent lurking at the event? <laughs> Let's call him our ace up the sleeve, super special operative. That's right, the great James Bloor himself took time out of his busy weekend to interview the contestants live for us, so I've got that goodie to dole out on another day. But for now, I'm excited to introduce today's guest. Ta, let's do it. Alright, my galore. Today we welcome a co-founder alongside Jordo of DM North, a multi-time WKO finalist, a continual terror in the CR game room tournaments, the champion of Virtual Worlds Part 2, the beholder spamboy source of True Mr. Six's indigestion, a top eight finisher in the 2018 Canadian National Championships. The reigning 2019 Canadian National Champion and the runner-up at the 2019 World Championships, the wizard from the Great White North, Mr. Welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's our great pleasure to have you here. We've been meaning to talk to you for a long time now. You've been on our short list. So I'm glad that uh, we can make it happen. And I apologize to your wife in advance. I know right now, for those of you who want to timestamp this in, in a moment in time. It's the Grey Cup. It is Canadian Football League's grand final, essentially the equivalent to your NFL's a Super Bowl. So the Grey Cup is happening tonight. Thank you for taking time out to speak with us and missing that. And, and apologies My favorite to team wife. isn't in, so no worries. <laughs> <laughs> As a Detroit Lions fan, I can feel your pain. Anyway, let's start off the evening by talking about you're one of the premier names, not only in Dice Masters internationally, but of course in Canada. And you were one of the founding members, if I'm not mistaken, of DM North. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that came to pass and and what you guys are all about oh my okay dm north was actually started back in early 2018 because Jordo and i we were regularly posting in a thread on the old reserve pool forums you remember those Mm -hmm. and there was a what have you played thread and we were constantly posting whenever we were running something we would share our team lists and our general strategies then the reserve pool forums went away and 
we wanted another place to keep talking about those things, right? Sure. So Jordo decided, you know what? I'm going to start us a blog here. I mean, we tried Reddit at first, didn't work out as well. So he started this blog and he was like, Laurier, you want to hop in? I went, sure. And shortly after that, Gord jumped in as well. And as we kept going, Jordo kept adding new ideas of what he wanted DM North to be about. I mean, he's the driving force behind a lot of the ideas that we have, like the mutation articles where he talks about variants of the game, the team of the month tournaments. That was also his idea. He, he's really the driving force behind the website, but it was all started because we wanted a place where we could share our teams and our strategies for those little, just to replace that old, what have you played thread. That was the beginning. Interesting. Interesting. I always love that thread. So that's, that's cool. And there'll be links in the show notes, right, Lucan? At (laughs) rollandthunder.xyz forward slash 205 for season two, episode five. No apostrophe, no G. (laughs) Right on. But there'll be links to all the articles we're going to be talking about shortly hereafter, and as well as just to DM North in general. I highly recommend everybody go check it out because it's an awesome, awesome site. Thanks for the shout out. Yeah, and shout out to Jordo, who we're hoping to have in the show in the near future as well. So how did you come to the game? And what was your background, any gaming background before all this? Oh, I... I actually got into several other games in the past, particularly Magic the Gathering. I mean, I'm sure that's the case for for a lot of us. And the thing is, I had tried a little bit of the competitive side of Magic the Gathering, but it, I don't know, I, I didn't feel like I fit into that crowd. Right. No offense to any of them. They're awesome people, but the way the game was played just competitively just didn't resonate with me. Mm-hmm. Then at one point, fall 2015, some of our local stores got into it and decided, okay, well, you know what? Here, we're going to sell some packs of this. I see it at one of the stores in question. Pick a couple of packs up. Hey, that looks pretty fun. I get in touch with the store that's actually running events. And just to illustrate how awesome of a community we have around here, the tournament organizer missed the War of Light release event to sit down with me for the whole evening and show me how to play the game. I came out of that with the AVX starter set and a very big motivation to try to learn. (laughs) Awesome. Can you give us a little bit of the history of, of the Canadian scene? And we're sort of down here in the lower West Coast, so kind of on the opposite ends of this continent in some ways. So <laughs> what's it like up there, and how's it going in general? It's, I mean, it's kind of interesting because Canada's a huge country. Yeah. So the people that play this game, it tends to be in pockets. Mm-hmm. Ottawa Gatineau, which is where I am, is the biggest one right now. Then you've got the Toronto area, which was not that big at the beginning, but started growing a little bit more in recent years thanks to the efforts of jocelyn rob and their crew right so they've been working on that area a bit more there's the calgary scene which is where jordo's from Mm -hmm. and i mean there were other pockets where it came and went i'm thinking especially of the vancouver area yeah so unfortunately that didn't work out quite as well and there was a little bit of a scene in uh, on the quebec side like more around the montreal area that came and went as well but Right now, the main pockets in the country are really Ottawa, Gatineau, Toronto, and Calgary. Do you guys still get local weekly meetups that are scheduled at the local game store where you meet and play in person? Oh, absolutely. Every week, every Thursday at uh, Multizone Comics and Games, which is where the Canadian Nationals was hosted, mm-hmm. every week we have an event. Awesome. And there's another one, Game Breakers, as well, on the Ottawa side. So it's essentially two local groups in this area, which is why this is the biggest pocket. That's fantastic. So if you're in that area, I'll let you do a shout out for them on the dates if you want. (laughs) Okay, so on Monday evening, 
Mustangs. It's Game Breaker Sports Cards mm-hmm. on the corner of Baseline and Fisher in Ottawa. Great. But the one I go to is Multizone Comics and Games on Thursdays at 6.30. And that's in Gatineau on Grébert Boulevard, just off of Highway 50. It's really easy to get to. You just use Google Maps and you can find it easily. Oh, that's awesome. And, and is that the store that the Royal Falcon is TO at generally? Or am I... Royal Falcon is Game Breakers. Game Breakers. Okay. I am TO at Multizone. Okay, okay. <laughs> Putting it all together from a distance here. Well, that's great. We can be doing any kind of format. I mean... Most of the time at Multizone, we'll do kind of casual golden age. What we really recommend modern is just that if an, an old school player comes in with an old team, we don't turn anyone away. Right. But we can end up with all sorts of things. And sometimes previews of what might win at Worlds. As I learned when I did a Green Lantern team, that ended up being rather similar to Ben's team. Ah, interesting. Except I didn't have his ramp engine, but the idea of the question to bring in Green Devil Mass, mm-hmm. some of the same synergies are there. Yep, yep. It's interesting, yeah. That was sort of the thing that put Ben's team over the top, is having that ramp on there was a really good call in the end, I think, you know. You are quite accomplished feet-wise and dice masters, so I'm just curious. How do you usually practice? Is it mental reps? Is it a lot of physically playing at the table? Like- it really depends. For local tournaments, I often don't have the time to practice more than maybe 10, 15 minutes. Because whenever I build a team, it's time I have to take away from the kids and from everything else. Right. Yeah. But like for bigger more tournaments. More often than, oh, for bigger tournaments? Well, what I tend to do is I build a giant pool of cards from which I'm going to build from. Then I build a number of teams from those, and then I kind of play them against each other. Mm-hmm. And I'll try to test also against other people. Typically, I'll have one or two training partners. I don't always necessarily practice with the same people. No offense to them, because they're awesome. But a lot of times it's good to test with someone different, just because you don't necessarily know how they're going to react, right? Right. And that really helps in a way to not settle into um, too much of a comfort zone. And that's one thing about me as a player is I do my best not to have a comfort zone. What do you mean by that specifically? I mean by that that I try not to have a card that I put in all of my teams. Got it. Of course, for example, Shriek is going to end up on a major competitive team like nine times out of ten. But sometimes I will purposefully try not to put her on the team Mm -hmm. and try to win anyway. Likewise, for things like Resurrection, okay, how do I make something work when I don't have that guaranteed turn three role, you know? Like, yep. those kinds of things. It's, it's really useful to, like, not have any crutches as a player. We, we were talking back at Worlds with Jimmy about how in the overall meta, when you pull on one thread, the whole tapestry changes. When they nerfed Adam, the whole meta shifted. And some things fell out of fashion, other things came in to popularity. And if you don't have any crutches, you're going to be fine no matter what the meta is. But yeah, no, I tried I tried running no, no Shriek at Worlds and... A lot of draws, a lot of draws. Well, I do want to mention, though, that, Luke, and you ran the Reflections, Wonder Woman Reflections, and I did want yeah. to give a big shout-out to Peter Vanderveld today, who won the European Championship, and he played that card in conjunction with Iceman, which was something that you were missing in terms of just doing major output I damage. Was, I was but, uh, solely focusing on trying to shut my opponent down with, like, the win condition just being tacked on as a bit of an afterthought. <laughs> but, you know... If I had had an hour more in every game, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to mention one thing also that, Laurier, you were talking about, which I thought was interesting, was practicing with multiple different players. And that's one of the things I really love about this game is that each person can bring their own personality and their play style and a little bit of themselves to the way they play the game. And it can radically alter what you think would be just a numbers-based crunch, crunch, crunch. But it really is such a personal endeavor. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, you can end up with some players that will 
really always try to go for the perfect planning in every way that will set up their bag perfectly. Others will go for the riskier play, but that can deal damage a little bit more quickly and try to get that edge. Mm -hmm. You can have others that will constantly go for pressure, pressure, pressure. There are so many different approaches that some people can take, sometimes even with the exact same team. Yeah. And honestly, that's one thing that I think I've gained a lot from playing online is getting to see a lot of those very effective play styles and knowing the kind of things I can have to prepare for. If you had to draw like a pie chart of games played online versus local game stores, etc., what what would you say your percentages would be? Oh boy, if I had to guess, it would probably be 70% game store, 25% online, and 5% major competition. I like this idea of getting a big card pool and kind of mashing it all together and building teams and competing against yourself basically with these teams and kind of weeding them out how long would you say that process takes for you as you're preparing for a major tournament because there, I, I i'm i lucan and i when we have had time to do that and i i love doing that i found that you know just being time challenged i kind of get frustrated with myself because i'll start playing this team that i love that i know doesn't have any business being in this pool <laughs> you know and then at a certain point i'm like get rid of that team because i gotta move on you know so how does that work for you kind of similarly actually where I'll be like, I want this to work. Especially if ever there's a meta where there's only one clear good team. Right. I will go out of my way not to use it. Because right. that will get on my nerves to no end. Because <laughs> right. I don't want a one-team meta. Yep. I mean, in a way, it'll be to my detriment a lot of the time. That's why, like, until this year, I had never gotten a win in a major tournament. Is because I kept going out of my way to go for the for the jank, pardon the term. Right. Yeah, yeah. I kind of I kind of feel that. I always feel like when I go into a major tournament, if I'm running the same one team with maybe like a slight permeation or something, even if I pilot it super well, someone who thought of something different and better is going to have the upper hand over me. So when I go into every tournament, I'm always trying to practice all those months ahead, figure out like, okay, what's what's the team which can handle all the different teams, is going to have the leg up in every single match. And then you get there and it's a little bit more janky than you had anticipated. It's like always feeling like you have to be a, a cut above in order to stand a chance in the meta and like actually do well. And then oftentimes ends up backfiring. Like I guess going forward for me, I'm just going to, if I can't think of something which is positively better than the meta, I'm just going to run the meta, you know? <laughs> So I guess knowing yourself, I'm, I'm bringing this all up just because I think it's so interesting that everybody has their own tastes and, and play styles and, and what works for one person doesn't work for another. And it's just great to see, even when you're practicing, to be practicing against other people so you get a full array of everything that's out there. I think, I think that's interesting. But like back to the earlier point, right? When you had Mask Ring in the meta, the, the standout team, which nobody saw coming, which ended up taking first and second place in Nationals, was the Dark Side team. And, and Shield Ring was the thing. And Shield Ring ended so, up winning Worlds. So yep, yep. So you're it's, right. Like, the answer is oftentimes outside the box, but, like, I guess if you can't figure out something which you're confident is better, just stick with the meta. <laughs> like, play, play everyone, Maybe. play the everyman team, you know? And I'm saying play what you'd have yeah, fun in. <laughs> What's your oh, thought Hopefully on that? they're the same thing. <laughs> and, I mean, in our case, for Worlds, for me and Jordo, it was actually kind of hilarious because until we figured 
figured out Sam Wilson. Yeah. I was not confident with that team going to Worlds at all. Interesting. What made you stumble on Sam Wilson out of curiosity? Just brainstorming. Mm-hmm. Legitimately, Jordo and I were just throwing names. Okay, what could work? Okay, come on, come on. We need something, something that can stop Iceman. Right. And we had tested other stuff. Like Obviously, we tested the Uncommon Nova Core extensively, but because it was reactive yeah. and not preventive, it was a big problem. Yeah, you had to time it right. To get that Uncommon Nova Core to come out of your bag at the right time can be a problem, too. Exactly. And then at one point, I blurted out the name Sam Wilson just because it came to my head. I had run it a couple times. And the second I said that name, we both went, wait a sec, that could actually work. <laughs> oh, great. And, <laughs> and then the testing started, and sure enough, that worked. So, yeah, just yeah. a lucky, like, just momentary flash of, I guess you could say, genius. It's so interesting because while we were doing some research for our recent Hall of Fame episode with David Walsh, I was watching some old videos on YouTube of the early days of Dice Masters, and one of them, Jimmy, was really singing the praises of, at the time, the Vibranium Shield Global, which back in the day was used wonderfully to stop people from pinging their Hulk. But here the Samantha Wilson Global is, which is exactly a reprint of that Vibranium Shield Global, and it is still so great, and people don't really realize how good it is. And it's really cool that you guys were able to figure that out. Yeah, and honestly, we'll talk about this a little bit later, uh, a little bit more later <laughs> in the show. But I was I was not sold on that card at the beginning. Uh-huh. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Well, you mentioned a word that I think we can dive into now, because this is something we've been wanting to talk about on the show since its inception. And that is jank. Lucan and I love janky teams. We know you love janky teams, so this seems like the perfect time to talk some serious loops and jankiness and all of that business. For us, this is like nothing more satisfying than a perfectly designed Rube Goldberg machine. So let's first go over some of the earliest loop teams that you can remember. Were there any loops that really jumped out at you when you were first getting into the game that that made you go, hmm, that's interesting? They weren't as prevalent in my local meta when I came in. It's mostly when we started having those long droughts of product Mm -hmm. that people started billing around jank, myself included. (laughs) So the first one I actually ran among infinite loops Mm -hmm. was actually the whole vengeance combo. You know, the Black Adam, Batman speedy recovery, Mm -hmm. so that essentially the two of them kept triggering each other because you'd take damage, which would KO Batman, which would send it back to his card because of Black Adam, unless you took damage, so you'd take damage, but Batman was already back on the field when you took damage, so he'd get KO'd again, and that just created an infinite loop until you'd send Batman back to his card. So all you'd need would be some retaliation or vicious struggle to be active and to have some way of regaining life, like the Captain America, the first Avenger, the one that when you take non-combat damage, you gain life. He spins up on his burst, he gains life. And he has burst on his level one and his level three, so only at level two does he not, but every time he spins, he, he... Yes, like yeah. <laughs> yeah, but because this is a constant, like, it, it was an infinite loop, he would constantly gain you life right. for every damage that you took, while your opponent took a damage from the, either retaliation or vicious struggle, whichever one you'd run. Yeah, there is one, or two cards, I guess, that there used to be which facilitate a lot of these really, really fun infinite loop teams, and those cards were the rare prismatic spray and the common Mr. Mizzleplex. Because, like, you could get one of your things on your opponent's side of the field to cause a billboard for it to reflect back on. That was, like, the whole idea of, like, Shadow Meld's mana time team, which kind of miss. I love, like, watching him back on the old days of Vassal play some some dude or whatever and be like, okay, so now I play the Wasp Global, 
and you die. And then I was like, wait, what? I'm sorry. I don't understand. Watching Shamel like backtrack, yeah. explain it three more times. The guy says, I still don't get it, but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> yeah. I think Patrick's, I think that team blew my mind the first time. And I thought that was so cool. His, the, the basic idea was he had man at a time with Captain America and he would use the rare prismatic spray to give the opponent uh, a man out of time as well he'd have vicious struggle up and then he'd just start the chain and because the opponent would hit zero before you would it would be game as, as long as you started with equal or more life yeah so yeah. the trick was to keep yourself a little bit ahead but he would use red dragon to help get that going to buy his vicious struggles get the opponent down one like that so that was a cool thing but let's go back to this i want to, i'm curious of going back to this vengeance team let's let's break it down a little bit for those folks who may not be quite as familiar with the cards if possible can you walk me through the core of the team and how you would play it and, and get it get it firing okay so the basic strategy like i'll take the most simple way to do it mm-hmm. where you don't have to have an action played where you can just have stuff active right you have black adam the ruler of kandak which is the rare mm-hmm. batman speedy recovery which is the common from World's Finest. And you'd have, like, let's say for this example, you'd go for Retaliation. So you'd have the rare Aquaman from Justice League alongside either Trusted Friend or Dick Grayson for the global to give Aquaman the Bat Family affiliation. So the idea would then be that you find some way to take a damage with those three active or KO another non-psychic character. Yep. And then what would happen is that, okay, so something is KO'd that is not a psychic. Black Adam triggers. So you have to take damage <laughs> or you have to send that card back to its card. You elect to take damage. Because you took damage, Batman triggers. He is KO'd and returns to the field at level two. Because he is KO'd, Black Adam triggers. <laughs> and retaliation triggers because Batman's a bad family character. So you have two triggers to worry about. The Black Adam, that would send him back to his card unless you take damage, and the retaliation trigger, that hurts your opponent. So, (laughs) essentially, you deal the damage, and then you take a damage again, which KOs Batman again because his ability sent it back (laughs) to the field. So he gets KO'd again. And so it keeps going and going and going. And again, as uh, Lucan mentioned, if you're at equal or higher life, you win. That's how you win. However, a, a team like this would also have Captain America, the first Avenger, or some other way to regain the life that you just lost. It was always fun to put on that uh, Lex Luthor, the super rare Lex Luthor that wouldn't let you go below zero. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was so cheesy. I loved it. Oh, Another wow. thing, like, if you're looking to build an infinite loop team at home, you know, this is janky stuff. This seems fun. I want to try building some jank. Another one of these pieces, which is kind of often at the center of a lot of the janky teams is a piece that brings itself right back, like the Batman speedy recovery that Laurier was talking about. Or another one of the favorite ones was Alfred Pennysworth, who always just resurrects as long as you have sidekick in the use pile. Well, not always. One out of six or times. One out of does. six times he resurrects, <laughs> or does not resurrect. Well, and trust um, me, that one out of six times will always happen to you at the most inconvenient uh, time. I know it. I <laughs> but it was so it. easy to pair with like Hush or somebody and he would just KO and Hush would KO over and over again. That would you'd have some other card like that would cause damage to do to your opponent or would KO your stuff like a Vigilante Justice. And now we we also still have a card in the game like that which is Orc Boy who as long as you have another Orc affiliated character in the field, he comes right back at level 1. Well, speaking of Orc Boy, I want to get into, real quick, because it will kind of probably color the rest of our discussion on this subject, because there recently was a ruling. Michaela had asked a question about, basically she noticed that 
in uh, the state of the game right now, we have these two cards. We have Orc Boy and Orc Knob. And Luke, and maybe you could just read the ruling because I'm going right. to quote it wrong, but it creates a kind of condition that caused the rules form answer. So here it goes. The question was basically, I'm paraphrasing here, you have Doctor Doom who gives all your non-villains minus one, minus one. You have Orc Knob who gets plus one attack and plus two defense each time a character is KO'd. And you have Orc Boy, who as long as you have another Orc-affiliated character in the field, he comes right back at level one when he gets KO'd. So since but his level one but side, his level only, one has side one only has one defense. So Doctor Doom is always KOing Orc Boy. Orc Boy being KO'd gives Orc Knob plus attack, and it goes on infinitely. So Michaela was asking, would this game end in a draw? How would it work? Because this is Orc Boy is a mandatory effect. You have to bring him back. And so is Doctor Doom, a mandatory effect. Where does this end? Would this create like a draw? An infinite game state that just ends in a draw. What's the answer? So what was what was the response? To so WizKids ruled a, a two part answer. If a static effect and an applied effect interact to create an infinite loop, and none of the cards creating the loop affect any other players or cards, the loop will repeat three times, and then the applied effect will not repeat regardless of if any other external effects are triggering off the same interaction. It'll only trigger the three times. And then the second part of that ruling was that if there's an infinite loop that neither player could select to stop, the game stops the loop after it triggers three times. So interesting. There's a lot of parsing in there because it's a complicated ruling that has generated a lot of discussion. But having put that in the background of our of our discussions here, how do you think that would affect the Batman Vengeance team that we just discussed? Oh my gosh. Well, there's a reason why I didn't run it. It's that I don't want to have to make that ruling. Right. <laughs> that why I didn't ru- run it like since the ruling. Right. Because in- I ran it once before at a actually at a WKO. Yeah, how did that go for you? Not well. <laughs> <laughs> Stuff didn't roll. It takes a little while to set up, right? I mean, you got to buy all those pieces and get them out, right? right. Batman's yeah, but I could still do it by turn four, but the problem is people introduced a turn three beholder imprisoned garbage right that was way too reliable so <laughs> right right but it's fun if you can get that you know rube goldberg machine running it's really fun isn't it yeah it is but unfortunately like it didn't always work out so that's life i'm not yeah. i'm not especially worried but yeah um that particular thing says infinite loop right so oh my goodness Technically, is it an infinite loop? And that that's something that I think would be worth asking WizKids. Mm-hmm. For the purposes of this rule, what constitutes an infinite loop? It's, for example, just to clarify, things like Black Adam, where you have the option of stopping it after each trigger. Right. Would it constitute an infinite loop? According to the ruling, I don't think so. Because the second part of the ruling says, if there's an infinite loop that neither player could select to stop, the game stops the loop after three times. Yeah, these are all really good questions. And and one of the ones that PK has kind of weighed in on a little bit that I thought was interesting is really making the distinction of the point about where it says, and none of the cards creating this loop affect any other players or cards. That part, I think, is, is, is important in this in that the cards that have to be doing the damage or the characters that have to be doing at least some damage to you or other characters have to be part of the loop. They can't be just watching from the sidelines. So I'm not sure if this, with this ruling, because Aquaman is the one who's doing the damage. That's Black Adam, Or right? Black Adam, but in this case. It's, but, it's, they're, but they're not technically involved in the loop. It's the Batman that's the loop that's going around, correct? I, I, I don't know if I'd want to make that particular debate. Yeah. But And honestly, you know what I'm noticing these days? Mm-hmm. You don't need to worry so much about pure infinite combos. Yeah, no, it's When true. there are so many that trigger as many times as you want. 
and get you to 20. (laughs) But it's not a loop, so you can stop it whenever you want. Best example of that is actually the whole Teen Titans Gigantic combo. Have you heard about that one? I I have, but I want to hear it from the horse's lips. Okay, so this one is a little bit more straightforward than the Vengeance build. What you need is to have Robin, Teen Titans leader, Mm -hmm. active. Remind us of his ability, because he is a cool card. He's an OP. Oh, yes. He's an old school promo. And essentially, what you need is to have him active and to have another Teen Titan active. So what you need, and then you need a third Teen Titans die to be on an energy side in your reserve pool. Mm -hmm. And then you can spin down a Teen Titans die to spin up a Teen Titans die. It does not say once per turn. (laughs) And so it says, while Robin's active, if you have a Teen Titans die on an energy face in your reserve pool during your main step, you may spin down a Teen Titans die to spin up a Teen Titans die. Yep. So what you do is you use Giganta, And to be clear, I mean the one that's called Giganta Standing Tall from the Superman Wonder Woman starter. While she's active, when a character die spins up, each of your Giganta dice gets plus one, plus one. (laughs) So you just spin down, spin up, spin down, spin up, spin down, spin up, repeat as desired. I once joked that I did it over 9,000 times. (laughs) And then all you need is a little bit of overcrush or making her unblockable. And you just won by excessive damage. <laughs> and if you if you want to be like utterly despicable in every way, you could just use Adam the Professor and just deal two damage to your opponents ten times. But then nobody's going to like you. So don't try this at home. You can't really do that with that combo though, because with Robin you have to spin down a Teen Titans to spin up a Teen Titans. Oh right, and Adam has the Justice Titan. League affiliation. Uh, you could right. do it. You could with the old. One. You could use the old uh, Adam, which does three damage to an opposing character. And then yeah. deal three damage slowly across the table. But you're right. Sorry about that. Oh, no worries. But yeah, so that's essentially just the combo is just, yeah, that that is despicable enough in itself. I think It is. I, I guess you could do it if you used Infiltrate, the action die, and you gave it to that Adam that you were talking about, Luke. In the, that's actually... A, but it's another oh, piece you'd have to buy. You know, a lot <laughs> of these, a part of the things that, that attract me to these janky combos is they're not easy to set up. So when you finally get them, you feel like... Well, I pulled that off. That was worth it, you know, because <laughs> there's a lot of monkey riches that can go in the way of these things, too, right? That particular one was surprisingly easy. Keep in mind, at the time, the meta included chalkboard. Right. So if you knew you had either the Overcrush action or the Teen Titans die coming up on the following turn, you'd prep yeah. whichever one you were missing from your combo. So it was surprisingly easy to set up because of chalkboard. Yeah, and we're, we're getting it back soon, so jank oh teams my. are going to become better. <laughs> yeah, well, that's going to be... A, we're going to get into the state of the game later, but, oh, that's going to be weird. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I'm thinking of that ruling. I mean, I'd like to get other people's opinion about it. My, my first instinct when I read the ruling was it was an attempt to prevent unresolvable game states. And then once you start parsing it beyond that, it gets a little bit fuzzy in terms of well like with with the orc boy orc knob thing going on it just takes off on its own and it's not doing any damage and the game isn't advancing in any way so is that what they were trying to say or were they trying to say that the the combo once it starts has to be in and of itself doing damage or if there is a spectator watching and doing damage as it's watching this combo go off some people are arguing that if it's a spectator doing the damage that it's not working i'm not exactly sure i'd love to get some clarification on it yeah but anyway they're they're fun i think the in and of themselves they're kind of fun to contemplate a lot of these combos i don't know a couple of ones i also want to talk about happen on on your opponent's turn so a lot of it involves the old uh transition zone slash out of play ruling from the day 
basically it came out when PXG came along and, and Rally came along and they were trying to find out when sidekicks actually moved into used. Can you refresh people's memory on how the used pile actually works in terms of transition when they introduced the transition zone with the introduction of PXG? Keep in mind, that was before my time. I joined around the time War of Light came out. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah, that's right. You came in War of Light. Right, right. Okay, well, I'll do my best to, to try to catch people up to speed. Basically, when they first started the game, there wasn't this concept of out-of-play or transition zone. And they realized that it was creating problems, especially with a card like Rally, where you could play the action and just draw the three sidekicks you just spent and put them right into the field. And then with PXG, it was another issue. So they clarified this with the ruling fairly early in the state of the game that when you spend energy or send things to used on your own turn, it goes to out of play. But there is no out of play on your opponent's turn. So a lot of this jank that we're talking about in a lot of these teams actually happens on your opponent's turn because the use pile is there for you to manipulate and all the dice that are in it are, are there for you to manipulate. And and that, that leads to some of the upper echelons of scummery of <laughs> just killing your opponent during your priority on their turn. You gotta feel bad for him. You, gotta. Oh, you mean like Patrick did to me at uh, Global Escalation at Worlds? Like yes, Patrick I was gonna does ask, to all of us. Can you tell us, because he had played that, there was an old Manticore Pyro team that existed to the day that I heard that Patrick had updated for Global Escalation. I didn't see the team in action. I guess you did. So I'd love to hear your, your recollection of how that team worked. That it was absolute garbage? Okay. <laughs> Slightly more elaborate. He would use his Twinga dice, mm-hmm. which of course are cheap, bolts, easy to get. And he would try to get as few sidekicks in his use as possible so that whenever he would draw and roll dice, he'd have higher odds of getting his Twingas rolling. Right. And so with Twinga being essentially his bolt engine, he'd get a higher chance of getting bolts that he can then keep. And then what he would do is he would have his Manticore active that whenever he rolls a double bolt in any circumstance, Mm -hmm. he deals two damage to generally me. So, oh, I just drew and rolled two of my Twingas. Oh my goodness. I just happened to have (laughs) two bolts on one of them. And the other is a character. Okay, goes back to the bag. Well, that two bolt just deals you two damage. And it's two bolts that that essentially means I have two potential triggers of that same global that allows me to draw and roll dice again and potentially deal you damage again and keep it going. And that's the pyro global, right? If you could remind people what what exactly is on that global, because most people don't know about that global, and it's good. Oh, yes. Okay. The uncommon pyro from Uncanny X-Men. For clarity, the uncommon, not the rare. Right. The rare has a similar global, but it costs two bolts to play, so it's not worth it. But the uncommon costs one bolt, draw and roll two dice, keep any bolts you rolled, return the rest to your bag. Right. So, of course, when you have primarily cheap bolt dice in your bag, that works out very, very, very well. How much damage was he able to do on your turn? His priority, your turn. Was he able to All do... of it. He did 20, right? Uh, right away. He did 20... Before I could, uh, before I could do much, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. But and it was. Here's the thing. It's not like my team wasn't strong. I okay. Admittedly, I missed a roll, but mm-hmm. it was with my beholder by frost garbage. Right. Which Luke and me remember as well. <laughs> oh, I, I remember that. It, yes. Garbage does not begin to describe it. <laughs> the team that earned me the nickname Beholder Spam Boy from Chris. True Mr. Six, you know, from yes. Brit Roller Six. So, Shout out to Chris. Oh, yes. And by the way, essentially, we're still on the weekend from 
the uh, European Open. Shout out to True Mr. Six for his coverage of the event. Yes, thank you, Chris. And congratulations to Peter for winning it. Absolutely. Congratulations, Peter. Congratulations to James for making the top table once again. Remarkable consistency there. So hats off to you guys. Remind everybody, I'm trying to remember, because I've played the Manticore team, but it's been a while. How did he set it up? What was his buy order, and how did he get it going? I mean, it seems like PXG was essential to clear out all the sidekicks so that when he played that Pyro Global, only bolts were coming into his bag, right? He didn't actually get to that perfect bag. He Mm. ended up having some sidekicks mixed into the rotation. So Mm. he needed some really, really lucky rolls. And he got them. (laughs) (laughs) He was actually going like, okay, I'm going to get as much damage as I can. I don't think I'm going to get there, but I'm going to continue going and going. And sure enough, miracle after miracle, he kept going and going and going. I'll put a link in the show notes to an old version of this team that kind of has the the bones, the skeleton of an older version of this team that is now stronger with the one-cost Chuenga that people can take a look at if they're interested in setting it up. Because it is interesting, and it's, it's a weird feeling when you're playing the game because you do most of your playing, if you're playing the Manicore team, on your opponent's turn. So the whole turn order gets feels weird. It feels like, okay, I passed priority, and I'm... And we're done. And now it's my turn. <laughs> yeah, After I've done all this stuff. To I you. remember I would. I was like, I, <laughs> I had like lethal on the table, and I pass priority, and he does all of his shenanigans, and then I go and I reach into my bag and I draw out four dice, and he's like, oh wait, no, 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 it's 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 still my priority, and I was like, wait, wait, the whole turn hasn't gone by, <laughs> so I put myself back in the bag and it's like, now I'm done. And I'm like, okay, fine, pass, and then then I realized I just left lethal on the table. <laughs> <laughs> And then he killed me in my next priority. It was sad. It was very sad. (laughs) All right. That's awesome. So that's the Manicore team. Uh, Let's see. Is there any other of these infinite loop teams that we want to touch bases on before we move on to the next part of the show? I'm trying to remember if there's anything else that's really fun. Well, I mean, Nick Wally, he made like a infinite loop-esque thing over at Worlds. Which also involved Orc Knob and Orc Boy. Well, it was that. And then before that, there was the Yandu one, which I believe you were involved in the creation of. You want to talk real quickly about the Yandu fabricating golem bananas team a little bit? Okay, keep in mind, I'm not the one that created the whole golems shenanigans thing. I think that was Steven, right? Originally, it was DM Armada. I'm the one who figured out a way to actually win with it consistently. Mm -hmm. That's the difference. But he's the one that came up with the combo. With the engine, at least, right? Yes, the combo engine, which is essential to this. So the core engine is that you use Thunderbird, which, to be clear, I mean Thunderbird from the Dark X-Men team pack, um, which I believe is Buffalo Soldier. Mm -hmm. And you use Hope Summers, which has the subtitle of Doom. Hang on, let me just look it up to be sure. Pluripotent Exopraxia. Pluripotent Exopraxia. (laughs) So, essentially, you use Thunderbird, and you use Hope copying Thunderbird. And Thunderbird, when he's KO'd, Return any other non-Thunderbird character dice that were KO'd this turn to the field at level 1. The thing is, Hope copies that text, but per the copying guide that they released a while ago, whenever you copy a character, you replace all mentions of that character's name with, in this case it would be Hope Summer's name. So you return all non-Thunderbird dice when Thunderbird is KO'd, and you return all non-Hope dice when Hope is KO'd. Mm -hmm. So all you need is a bunch of golems to fabricate, and something to win with. In my case, what I went with is Yondu from the Guardians of the Galaxy, specifically Yaka Arrows, which is the rare, which says when Yondu is KO'd, Yondu deals one damage to your opponent for each non-sidekick character die in your used pile. So, you fabricate Yondu and either Hope or Thunderbird. Both of them are KO'd, and let's say I did it with Thunderbird first, Yondu comes back because of Thunderbird's effect. 
mm-hmm. then you KO Hope and Yondu. And what happens is that every time you do those KOs, because you did it to fabricate, those fabricated dice go straight to your use pile. So you're loading up on damage, yep. <laughs> exactly. So let's say this time I would do it. Hope and Yondu get KO'd. Well, they'd bring back Yondu, and you also bring back the Thunderbird you KO'd earlier. Mm-hmm. And then you repeat the process for all of the dice that you happen to have available to fabricate. You deal one damage, then two, then three, then four, then five, then six. Let's see. <laughs> one plus two plus three equals six. Six plus four equals ten. Mm-hmm. Ten plus five equals fifteen. And then you add another six, and that's twenty-one. And that's game. Yep, it's and really that's, cool. That's and like, and that's why Yondu works so well because it maths out perfectly. And like, there are some other like attractive when KO'd deal damage abilities in the game. The one that comes to mind instantly for me is the Uncommon Firefly, which is when he KOs if there's a bolt in your reserve pool, deal two damage to your opponent. But then you'll find that you have to put three golems on your team. And once you have three golems on your team, it's not exactly efficient. Because <laughs> now you have, now when you add in with your three golems and your Thunderbird and your Hope, if you want to throw in a Shriek, you have no room for any sort of efficiency. Yeah. Oh, even, even with two golems, I didn't throw in Shriek in my version. Yeah. Instead, I would throw in dupe for removal. Yeah, there's there's a lot of ways to make these things work. They are janky, and that's half the fun of them. I mean, there were other ones out there. There was an old rare Agent Venom Human Torch one that went off that was a little harder to pull off, but it was you know one of these loop combos <laughs> that was fun. You know, I know Zach and from uh, James and Zach's had a White Lantern Dove infinite loop combo that all he has up on YouTube, and I'll throw a link in the show notes. It was similar to the Man Out of Time idea where you used Mixelplex to give your opponent a white lantern dove and then you start off the chain and bang 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 you know vicious struggle is in a lot of these kind of things but in that case you don't need vicious struggle because white lantern dove who says like when you take a damage deal a damage and as long as you're ahead you just got ahead of the thing and you can start ping-ponging back and forth and win that way yeah and if you want a struggle free loop team that's pretty fun you mentioned Alfred earlier, Lucan. Mm. Yeah. And Alfred, I used with the Uncommon Vibranium Shield from Civil War, that whenever you're oh, a yeah, character you control is yeah, KO'd, yeah. you give plus two defense to your stuff. <laughs> and then I would throw in uh, the Rare Baron Zemo. If one yeah. of your characters is KO'd, he becomes unblockable. <laughs> then say you throw in Ant-Man, or I think I played Modern at the time, and Kal-El was Modern. Yep. So, same idea. You flip him. To flip the attack and defense. You can get to lethal very easily. <laughs> as long as that sidekick doesn't show up on your Alfred's rolls. Yeah. Alfred in that uncommon Bruce Wayne would do the trick, too. Every time he came back, Bruce Wayne, you could use him to knock knock the Alfred off again and just keep pumping the D, you know? That, that whole Bat Family thing was really strong <laughs> for a period of time. Man. Yeah, you had a really great Bat Family team that you played into WK at one point in time. Can you tell us about that? Oh, my. Okay, that was actually my very first WKO. Cool. So that was actually a lot of fun, where I uh, had actually run the rare Bruce Wayne, uh-huh. that he captures a character that's level two or less. And brings your Batman up at level three. I'd, of course, put Alfred. I'd put the uh, discount Batman, the one that costs less when you have Bat Family characters. Yep. And the Robin, the common Robin that gets buffed when you have Batman on the field. Mm -hmm. So with all those Bat Family characters, and I had Oracle in there as well, all I needed to do was use the old school Green Goblin Global from AVX. Uh, Yeah. Remind us of that. You can pay a bolt and KO one of your sidekicks to do two damage to a target character. Right. So what would happen is that I would KO an Alfred to do two damage to another Alfred. 
Yep. And all of a sudden, that means, say I have Vigilante Justice, two triggers of Vigilante Justice to KO two opposing characters. Yeah. That means two opposing dice captured, and that means two Batman on the field. Yep. So all of a sudden, that's a huge swing in abort state. And if I happen to have Robin at level 3 active with two level 3 Batman dice, that's already 20 damage. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, it, it went really quickly. And just for perspective, this was four days after the set was actually tournament legal. <laughs> well played. People didn't expect yeah. it. We ended up with a top eight at that tournament. I bet you did. That was Bard, 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 Gobby, 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 and Batman. And Batman. That's so cool. And and even to this day, I don't think people realize how powerful that Vigilante Justice card is. It's nasty, you know, because if you're not playing Batman, it's goodbye to your board half the time, you know, especially if you have any of these kind of crazy win KO'd retaliation teams that especially I think about with that orc boy or something, it's it's coming back anyway. <laughs> you know, or Batman's coming back anyway. So your board state remains, their board state disappears. Oh yeah, I actually did something funny with that one. Uh, I, I, I think I'll send you the link to that. I ran a Hush Manta team. Hush, the uncommon Hush, that if there's a Bat family character on the board, he gets KO'd and you get to prep a die. Alongside Black Manta, that has retaliation dealing damage for each villain you happen to have. <laughs> yeah, it's just a dirty pool, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then I have Vigilante Justice active so that, oh, for each of my hushes that I trigger, not only do I deal you damage, I KO your stuff and I ramp at the same time. Yeah. Yes, that is dirty pool. <laughs> yeah, but that's what you look for in these things. You know, it's all there. You try it. Try it. Play it. Move on. It's, it sounds great. Jordo stopped just short of kicking me off of DMNOR for that, I think. Uh, he was he His reaction was just to like say, shame, shame. You'll notice there's actually a disclaimer at the beginning of that article. <laughs> because he really, he was like, boo, at that team. Try it once, folks, and then move on. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's the reason why my local folks are actually okay with me doing this, this kind of broken crap, is that right. I'll do it once. I'll move on. <laughs> you want mean teams to make people resign? I remember my old school Krang team. Oh, yeah. oh that was that was painful. I, I don't know if you've ever played with Krang. He's the backstuffer, right? When he's fielded, move all sidekick dice from your opponent's used pile and prep area to their back. <laughs> my opponents did not think to bring chalkboard. Right. So at, at that at that particular event, I had opponents that bought eight dice yeah. in during the game didn't get a single one to be in their bag <laughs> because I kept loading it back up. Yeah, that's really frustrating. <laughs> you know, speaking of the folks at your local scene, you know, I've heard a lot of folks from your local scene talk about how good you are at bag management in particular. And, you know, that's a skill that I know a lot of players would like to get better at. And I know people have asked us to go into more depth in it. So while we have you here, what's what's your secret, in your opinion, to good bag management? And what are the things you need to keep in the forefront of your mind to really pull it off? Well, number one thing is constantly, constantly, constantly count your dice. And that might involve looking two or three turns ahead. Say, for example, I'm going to be loading my bag with nine dice next turn. Well, that's not great, but how do I get back on track? Okay, I've drawn my four dice for the first of those turns. If I use a prep global like Atlas or Resurrection, that leaves four dice in my bag. Mm -hmm. That's good, because then when I draw those four dice and I trigger a prep global, I trigger a bag refill. And that's always what I aim for, getting counting my dice to trigger that bag refill just at the right time. 
And you can do that a lot of ways. It can be emptying your use pile, so you draw just the right amount of dice. It can be watching how many dice you purchase to get your dice rate, so that you get multiples of four heading in your bag if you can, or that you have something you can quickly adjust from. And the reason that's so great for newer players who are just tuning in is when you pull your last four dice out of your bag during your clear and draw step, and then use a prep global like Atlas or Resurrection, it effectively cuts your use pile in half. Everything you spend on that turn, because we were talking about earlier, goes out of play. Those dice that you've used that turn won't be going into your bag. So you've effectively called your bag of things you don't necessarily want in there, correct? Yes, exactly. And it's very good filtering to do. That's why you'll often have a common trope in competitive play will be to use resurrection during your second turn, the resurrection global on your second turn, to immediately refill your bag. Right. That's the basic one. But an even better thing to do is, because say, for example, you use four dice on your first turn. You buy a die. You've already got five dice in your used pile. Mm -hmm. If you buy another dice on your second turn and then use Resurrection, that leaves you with six dice. You draw one, you're left with five. Oops, you've just messed up your bag. That's not ideal. But say you have access to, say, the Professor X global from X-Men First Last, where you pay a mask, feel the sidekick. On that turn two, if you can buy a die and feel the sidekick from your used, all of a sudden, that's one less die in your used, that leaves you with five dice. Use that prep global. You draw one, you're left with four. The magic number. Those four that you draw means that you'll be able to have perfect bag control to trigger a bag refill on the following turn as well. And that's what you aim for. You aim to have four dice left to draw. Great. So that you can keep that bag control going. Get consistent draws as well is extremely important in competitive play. Getting consistent draws to be able to get to what you need faster. Yeah, two, two cards, which I, I think kind of along the lines of what you were saying, super useful to keep good control of the bag are Create Food and Water and Clayface. I mean, Clayface is, is a very double-edged sword, obviously. If you have five dice in your use pile on your second turn, you're worried about calling your bag or you need to time it so one of those dice comes out one turn and then the other one comes out the next turn, you can use Clayface, take the die that you just bought last turn, bring it on double energy face, then spend it on another one of those dice and perfectly stagger it. Like if you use Swarm, you don't want them both coming out at the same time. So you can stagger it so you get one one turn and then one the next turn and always have a perfect five in, one out for prep and then four out during your clear and draw step. Well, I've watched Laurier do this really well with Clayface. Do you want to talk about your thoughts of that and how that Clayface might work into your idea of four in the bag and all that kind of thing? Clayface really helps if you need to take a die out of your use pile that you may not need to draw immediately. And essentially, it can be you turn one energy into one energy if you're taking a psychic out. Mm -hmm. Or say you have a die with swarm, as Lucan said. You take that die out of used and you convert that one energy into two. That means you have more resources available to buy stuff. It also means you have better control over what's in your use pile and of what you're going to draw after. And it puts something else into out of play, which you might need to do if you need to thin the things that are actually in the use pile. Say you have six dice and you only want to have five, well, you can use Clayface to get one of them out of there so that when you use your resurrection, you're going to have that perfect four in your bag again, right? Exactly. And that's something that people need to remember when they're thinking about bag control. Actually, that's a good point. I should have elaborated on that more. Mm -hmm. It is the fact that when you spend stuff, it goes in transition, which means you can buy everything you want right away. But that's that stuff that you buy is going to go straight to use, but the stuff you spend to get there doesn't. That is essential to keep in mind if you want to keep that bag control going. 
So thank you for that that little detour. We really appreciate it, and hopefully, folks will find that useful. One one really quick thing left on bag control. I I think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but nobody for some reason outside of like the highest echelons of competitive play seems to realize that you can use create food and water on your opponent's turn. Oh, yeah. um, so you can use that to get two dice if you're in a pinch out of your bag. Mm-hmm. All right, now on to number, <laughs> now on to the next one. <laughs> All right, well, we do a section on this show called Breaking It Down, where we pick one particular card that we've seen played by the guest and have that person do a sort of master's class on how to put it to good use. Now, we saw on your world's team a card that has made a splash in the meta recently, and that is the good old Supreme Intelligence Global. So here it goes, breaking it down. And that is incredibly ironic that you asked me to break it down because <laughs> the team I ran at Worlds was only the second time I ever ran that card. Wow, okay, well, well done, hats off. Thank you. But okay, so Supreme Intelligence. Now, let's keep in mind... I'm not going to talk about the Fabricate effect or the well-active effects of any of those cards. Because unless you really go out of your way, you're never going to use those. Right. What you really want is the global, where you pay two energy of any type. Once per turn, you move a die with purchase cost two or less from your use pile to your prep area. Now, let's start off right, right off the bat by saying this is a fantastic energy sink. If you have nothing good to purchase, you've mm-hmm. bought all that you need. Keeping those two energy just to prep a die that you know you'll need later is a great way to use that spare energy instead of forcing yourself to buy more dice than you need. Yeah, which is a bad habit. Yes, it is, and I've had that habit as well. Just putting that out there. Oh, it's an easy habit to have. (laughs) Oh, yes. And another thing to keep in mind, it says a die with purchase cost two or less. It can be a character, it can be an action, it can even be a sidekick. Mm -hmm. Any die with purchase cost two or less. Good example, in fact, from my team from Worlds, was Atlantis. Mm -hmm. I would use Supreme Intelligence to prep an Atlantis die so that I could have that ramp ramp engine, Atlantis being an action that when you use it for the rest of the turn, when you feel the psychic, you draw and roll two dice. Right. That gets out of control in a hurry when you set it up correctly. And and just to get an idea really quickly of how, how potent this card is, Ben, in the finals games, he would get his shriek out and he'd slap that token right onto Supreme Intelligence. Never mind Wong or any of the other characters or Black Widow or, Black or, Widow anybody, or anybody. Yeah. Straight onto that Supreme Intelligence. Yeah, he went after my ramp hard because he knew that was my best. Like, he knew that he had no other way to shut down my ramp than to shut down Supreme Intelligence. And so that's why he went for that, which was a very smart play. There's another thing to keep in mind. Sorry, I want to mention it before I forget. Once per turn. Yeah. Not once during your turn. It can be used once on your turn and once on your opponent's turn. Or if you're holding energy to use for another global, and it doesn't turn out to be necessary, like, for example, against an Iceman team, I would hold shields in case they would attack with Iceman so that I could use those shields to prevent the damage with Sam Wilson's global. Well, oh, you've used all your bolts because you see you can't deal me damage? Okay, I'm going to prep an Atlantis. (laughs) Right. Now, when you had full access to both, was the fact that the Supreme Intelligence Global was on your team, did that cause you to think, maybe I don't need to buy a second Atlantis? Or were there times where you just were like, one Atlantis is enough because I got Supreme Intelligence? It really depended on the opponent. Mm -hmm. If I was up against Iceman, I would absolutely want multiple Atlantis dice because I'd want the cheap shields. In those matchups, 
the question would not even ask itself, or against fix it for that matter. Because mm-hmm. uh, my top eight opponent, uh, Jake, he had Black Canary, Danger Room, Fix It team. Right. Yeah, that was insane <laughs> to be up against. Right. So you just had to have shields at the ready, right? Yeah. So I would want those shields. In those cases, having multiple Atlantis dice was essential. Against other opponents, I. Th- don't remember if I'd go out of my way to buy multiple Atlantises or if I'd be content with one. I think I wanted at least two just in case. But having the Supreme Intelligence made it so that it wasn't absolutely necessary, especially super early in the game, because you could hopefully get it across, right? Yeah. It made it less necessary. I'd focus more on getting more Wongs Mm -hmm. and perhaps Widows earlier in those kinds of matchups. Interesting. We're, we're going to have this team posted in the show notes so that you can see very specifically what we're talking about. Right. Uh, at rollandthunder.xyz forward slash 215 for season 2 episodes. I know. But now onto what I was really saying. Back, starting back to our conversation about bag management, you know, Supreme Intelligence can take a, a die or two out of that cycle as well. So I guess my question is, how did people use that to get to the point where they could have always the perfect bag draw, everything they needed every single turn. Like, how do you see it best used, and how did you use it best? Well, for bag management, it's not actually that good to rely on that for your bag management because you're paying two energy mm-hmm. per die you're moving. That's a pretty hefty investment if all you're doing is a bit of bag management. Unless that die is your ramp engine. Mm-hmm. If you do it with a thrown brick, <laughs> or if you're doing it with Atlantis, then that helps you keep a lot more control over what you're doing. And that's where I think Supreme Intelligence is best used, is to use that two energy to prep essentially a ramp engine. Because then that investment of energy is well worthwhile. Yeah. And I want to mention, because I was playing against Troy, who was using Supreme Intelligence Global. And to my detriment, I had Clayface. Because I quickly learned that, boy, does Clayface supercharge Supreme Intelligence. Because suddenly, you can, for one energy, you can be doing this global, right? You pay a clay face, you get two energy, you use that to Supreme Intelligence something over. So it just harmonizes really well. Are there any other cards that you think, wow, besides two costs, obviously, but any other sides besides two costs and ramp engines that really work well and synergize and harmonize well with this global? If you have a good mass removal tool that relies on it, which is actually the first time I ran Supreme Intelligence was in a rare Surter build. Ah. And I would use Confront the Mighty. So I'd prep my Confront the Mighty with the Supreme Intelligence Global so that I could guarantee my removal engine. On command. Which is essentially how I'd win. I'd just wipe their board using Confront the Mighty with rare Surter so that rare Surter would KO an opposing die, which, by the way, KOs every other die that player has. Right. Right. So mean. (laughs) Right. Okay, I can actually great. link you to that Surter team if you'd like. Please do. Please do. Links will all be available in the show notes, folks, if you're curious. At. Not again. <laughs> Rolling under <laughs> XSC4 slash 205. Two episode five. No apostrophe energy. <laughs> Are there any mistakes to watch out for with this card? And, and have you seen any misplays with it? The main mistake is to overuse it when you didn't buy enough dice. It can be a fantastic energy sink. If you've bought too much stuff already. But if you invest too much energy in it too quickly, it can set you back. Like, for example, say I have an empty bag and I know I'm going to get a bag refill. Right. I have a Wong in my used pile. Do I buy another Wong or do I prep the first one? Right. The answer is you buy another Wong. Because then when you draw on the following turn, you're going to have two of them floating around. You're going to have twice the chance to get those allies. 
if ever all you're doing would be prepping a Wong. So you see what I mean? It's if I you do. overuse it and you set yourself back in terms of how to get to your win condition. Yep, yep, because it is expensive. It's a two. But it was interesting. Troy talked a lot about being super effective against Green Devil Mask. He was worried about his board being reset, and it allowed him to get his two-cost pieces like Boom Boom back brick, into the field yeah. or Brick right back over there without having to claw through his bag again, you know? I could see that. I could, mm-hmm. I could see that being a useful tool for that. Yeah. What other counters and weaknesses does this card have? Is there a good, you know, besides Shriek, obviously, it was a good counter to it, but anything else that, that, that jumps to your mind in terms of, like, that would really get in the way of, of people using? Well, the main thing, obviously, is global hate, which is a little mm-hmm. more prevalent in the current meta with you know, Rare Wrecker, mm-hmm. even the Uncommon Blackbird. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of cards can really hurt Supreme Intelligence. Yep. I admired Troy's build with the Polaris from the new X-Men set, which said you can use one global a turn, but with Supreme Intelligence, you only want to use it once anyway. So it allowed him to use the global he really wanted to do, but it shut everybody else from, like Iceman teams, from going crazy with bolts and things. Yeah, that's a good point. Interesting. Okay. I'm not a big that big of a fan of that Polaris card personally. But Yeah, yeah. It was it was good in the meta at that moment. Yes. You know? And maybe it absolutely. still is with Iceman still obviously winning Euros right now and stuff. Iceman's still really strong. Still, <laughs> I mean like Iceman is still the it's one of those cards or not Iceman, sorry. Polaris is one of those cards which I really want to like. It's just every time I play it, I'm about to field it and I look at that fielding cost and it's just like a massive punch to the gut and i'm like hold on it's like let me go grab wrecker (laughs) let's move on to team building in general because you're one of the great team builders out there and i'd love to talk about your team building process you know what are you looking for when you set out to build a team in general well here's the thing when i build a team i can just be flipping through my binder and going oh i want to build around that and then i just build 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 i maybe want to focus more on how i evaluate cards rather than building the team if that's okay that's perfect let's do that yeah because when i build and i see a card i i I look at five different elements which i refer to personally as the five c's okay the first one is win condition the second one is the purchase curve right third one is consistency the fourth is cohesion and the fifth obviously are counters Mm -hmm. so gonna go through them a little bit the win condition obviously how the heck do i actually try to get my opponent's life from 20 to zero with this so whenever I evaluate what cards to put in the team, I'm like, okay, well, I need to make sure I have a way to win here. That's pretty obvious. Then purchase curve. And this is one where I am a little bit stringent on this, but it's very important. I always make sure I have a two cost. I always make sure I have at least one, generally more, three costs, because that's often how much energy you have left. Mm-hmm. I try to make sure I have something at every spot of that purchase curve if I can, because you never know how much energy you're going to have. And I'm like, okay, what do I do if I end up with five, with six, with seven? And sometimes it can be buying a combination of dice. But that purchase curve is important. Like you need, when I look at cards, I look at a team and I'm like, oh, I only have one three cost in the team and it's a die I would only need to buy one of. Right. That's going to come back to bite me. Mm-hmm. Let's see if I can go around that. Okay. Another thing I look for is consistency. I'm like, okay, do I need to have to roll three different non-continuous actions on the same <laughs> turn for my thing to work? Right. Okay. Do I have a way to actually make that work? Not really. Okay, let's try to move to a different strategy then. You know, so consistency is one of those things where, okay, sure, nothing's going to fire off 100% of the time. But if you're trying to go for something that is so low percentage, 
it may not be worth it. Right. A good example of that is when I was building my uh, Vicious Raccoons team back in the <laughs> second Virtual Worlds tournament. Mm-hmm. For those who don't know, Vicious Raccoons essentially use Vicious Struggle. Then you use the rocket raccoon that deals one damage, deals one damage to each player. <laughs> and you'd use a cosmic cube, which would enhance the damage dealt by rocket raccoon. <laughs> right. And then the damage dealt by vicious struggle. So you deal three damage instead of one with rocket raccoon. And then a vicious struggle tries to deal three, but because of a cosmic cube, that three damage becomes five. Right. So that one rocket deals eight damage. <laughs> yeah. But I'd have to roll two different non-continuous actions at the same time. So chalkboard was essential to make that work. Right. Big Entrance was in that too, to try to set up sometimes that one big turn. Had I not had both of those tools, I would not have had the consistency to win with it. Interesting. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that consistency as well. I remember you had a team, you were one of the few people I saw try out that Forge who has that ability. Why am I blanking on the name? Oh the yes, ability? I know which Forge you're talking uh, about. The one with Energize, which reduces the cost of actions. It is yeah. Energize. Energize, if he rolls on a double bolt, you get the cost of an action reduced, right? Wasn't that the deal? Yes, Forge Intuitive Genius. Right. Now he's somebody who, again, consistency is an issue with, right? Am I making that up? Or? Oh, you're not making that up at all. I can include a link to that build as well. Cool. But yeah, I was trying to use the Uncommon Mjolnir uh, yeah. and actually be able to buy those Mjolnirs, essentially roll two Forge on double bolt, reduce my actions cost by four, yep. and with those four bolts, buy all four of my Mjolnirs. Well, that seems really good in terms of the other C, compatibility, but the consistency C may be troubling, right? Consistency is the problem, yes. Yeah. Because you might get one on double bolt. You might get one of them on single bolt. Right. The, the odds of getting a character on double bolt after roll and re-roll mm-hmm. is... Not that good. You've only got one it's third on each. Fifty percent chance that you actually get what you want, right? And that's exactly. why I've been like saying for a while, energize is a super cool ability because you know, in in spirit, no matter what face you roll it on, you're getting something that's going to do you some good. You're either getting some board presence or you're getting this effect to trigger. But since they didn't say any energy face, only made it the double energy faces, instead of being the 75% chance that you get what you want, which you have with every other character in the game, it's a 50% chance. And that just makes it not too viable because of that third C. If you need if it you, to come up energized, if right? If you need it to come up energized, and if you don't really need it, it probably isn't going to be on your team. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's made worse by the fact that in my case, I was trying to get two different energized characters on double bolt at the same yeah. time, which means I only had 50% of 50% of a chance right. for it to work. So 25% chance. So yeah, it, it was it was really janky. That did not have any consistency whatsoever. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, well, that's a good example of, of that and kind of reverse, so to speak. Yes. And another thing to talk about now would be cohesion. Mm-hmm. And this is one that's very underestimated because you need to make sure your cards actually work with each other and not against each other. Yeah. The best example I can think of, say you're putting, and I'm not judging anyone who did this, I've done that kind of stuff in the past, say you're putting Scarlet Witch on your team yep. to try to make it so that your opponents have to reroll their actions. <laughs> yeah. But say you rely on actions, so you're like, I'm going to put a server rack on my team. <laughs> right. You just get Those two out. cards are not going to work together. Yeah. And so whenever I build a team, I try to ask myself, okay, does my team get tripped up by anything i'm bringing Mm -hmm. you know and that's something cohesion that is very important to look at i remember once i I almost did this and i nearly kicked myself in the head i I put on the rare blob and then i was going to throw on polymorph or or misdirection which would get around him you know so just don't do that right exactly and that's a great (laughs) example of it but you know what cohesion isn't just about that there's another thing a lot of times when there's one combo there are two Mm -hmm. so say you're running a particular combo to win, a lot of the time, 
just adding one card can give you a secondary win condition. Best example, in my world's team, I threw an insect plague. Because, <laughs> sure, most of the time, I'm going to try to swarm you and win with numbers, with large amounts of characters swinging at you. But say that's not viable. If I make a Wong unblockable and buff him with, say, Haymaker, I've just gotten myself a secondary win condition that is very easy to set up. Yeah. And that's just one card out of my team. So sometimes just looking at that cohesion, you can build that secondary win condition so easily. Such a good word for it, too. I like cohesion. I, I said compatibility earlier, but cohesion is much better. And, you know, I was thinking of one card that had such good cohesion on my world team. No, I no, think was my US Nats, Nats team. Black Canary. And I was, that, I was thinking about the Creek Captain Canary. on there. I mean, he was very useful for helping me get to Collector, but he also became a win condition with Black Canary quickly if I needed him. So he had good cohesion on that team. He worked in both win condition and ways that I needed to go. I don't know if that makes any sense, but... Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, another thing I really like about having two win conditions, another one of my favorite ones to use is having Hulk and Fix-It, which are both high-ticket cards at six cost. But your opponent's actions in the early game will often dictate which one you go for. And if they see that Fix-It and they say, I'm going to go for my Ronin, for example, if it's Golden, then you can go for your Hulk. And their actions are going to set them behind, and it's just kind of fun to watch them do that. I'm, I'm a good person, though, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but let's get back to cohesion. I'm sorry to jump in there, but I just kind of got excited there for a second. Oh, no worries whatsoever. But yeah, when we talk about cohesion, I mean, I think I've covered the main things on that. I could mm-hmm. actually just talk to you for an hour just about that. <laughs> okay. So let's not get let's, into that too much. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to the last C here. Yes, which is counters. How can your team be stopped? How can you get ready for it? And more importantly, what are you trying to stop? So this is something that, at Worlds, that question was bugging me the whole time. What am I trying to stop and how do I stop it? Mm -hmm. Well, I wanted to stop Iceman. How did I do it? With Sam Wilson. I wanted to stop Collector, because Collector Control would have been a giant pain in my rear. How did I do that? Green Devil Mask. Yep. And how do I get stopped? With Static Field, and I don't have a good counter for that crap Hmm. but i mean unfortunately at some point it has to be a numbers game yeah and i was like okay if they only have a way to do a couple masks per turn i'm okay the only problem is if someone builds a giant wall of masks with Mm -hmm. static field which there is no major team in the meta that can do and of course i ended (laughs) up against ben (laughs) when do you say enough with the counters and when do you just say, you know what, I'm going to roll the dice and see what matchups I run into? Because if you hadn't run into Ben or if somebody else had knocked out Ben, you might have been perfect, right? So at what point during your playtesting do you say, uh, I'm comfortable with this? And are there any equations that you use? Do you think, well, I'm probably not going to see that. I, I, I sense that there was a little bit of the math in there. You were thinking like, well, I probably won't see somebody with a billion masks. So I'm not going to worry about that. Is that kind of how you came to that conclusion essentially but the thing is that math will really depend on what meta you're dealing with yeah you can't really go for a hundred percent certainty whenever you're planning for counters the main difficulty you're going to run into is trying to evaluate what you're probably going to see sometimes it's very easy okay you want is everywhere okay <laughs> bard is everywhere Iceman is everywhere but that's not always going to translate to real life. Yep. So you identify two or three big threats, and then you identify your strategy. Am I the aggressor in that matchup? Okay, how do I win before my opponent when that happens? If I'm not the aggressor, how do I stop them to stabilize and set up my own win condition? So best example of that from Canadian Nationals. 
I had identified that I was the aggressor in just about every matchup, mm-hmm. and thus that I needed more to focus on removing opposing control in order to win. Yep. So when you evaluate the meta like that, planning for counters is much easier because all you need to plan for is including more and more removal. But when you're dealing with a matchup where you're playing a slower team, that's when you're going to need more control pieces because you're not the aggressor. And that's when it gets more complex. So it's it's interesting because Dice Master's team building kind of favors the aggressor. Yep. Yeah, and like what, what you're talking about right now is like the whole article that was written, I forget when or by who, but like who has the beatdown. If you see that path, if you see that, that opening thread, you just follow that thread and just straight line it for the most aggressive path to victory if you have the proverbial beatdown. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that came out of Magic originally. I believe Dave had an article from way back in the Reserve Pearl days. I may have it somewhere. I'll try to dig it up and see if I have it because it's worth looking at. So now, I think maybe we're getting to the segment of the show where we've got a really cool announcement to make. And we've talked about how you evaluate cards. And so I'm going to kick it off to you. Here's a giant softball floating across all the way from Los Angeles to to Ottawa. (laughs) Hit it out of the park, Mr. Laurier. Okay, so some of you, and you know who you are, have approached me about putting back the essentials list which essentially is something I had started back in 2017 as a tool to help new players. And yes, we are bringing that back. Now, I don't know if this will come out before we launch it, but on December 1st, we will start launching the new Essentials list. Now, what this is, it's a list of cards that we recommend that start from essentially a semi-competitive to competitive standpoint to say, if you're looking at playing in Dice Masters, here are some cards we recommend you look at if you're looking at competitive or semi-competitive play. Great. And where can they find this? It will be posted on DM North. I will provide the link. You will. You should have it the show notes. Okay. on Rolling Thunder as well. Yeah. <laughs> so the plan is actually, though, to release this because, I mean, it's the season, right? It's the holidays. Yeah. We're going to be posting this in a kind of advent calendar style awesome. release schedule where every day from now to Christmas... We'll be including at least one set every day that will be added to the essentials list. And keep in mind, we did have to do some updates to the list because some cards became outdated, some cards became less useful, just became outshone by other cards. For example, let's say you'd be looking at Boom Boom. Mm -hmm. She's essentially the old school Doctor Strange, except costs two instead of six (laughs) right you know (laughs) so in that case like some of the old essentials were pushed out over time and i've spent the past little while going through all the sets going through the list asking myself what should be removed from the list what should be added to the list especially with global escalation some Mm -hmm. combos started shining a little bit brighter and so we've been working hard on that and there will be new functionalities added so head on over to dm north and check out the essentials list starting december 1st we'll be posting about it every day oh that's really cool and 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 if you're a newer player looking to go to worlds or nationals for the first time and you're like well how do i even begin to play test for this massive event set aside a pool of cards like laurier does and don't even have to think about what deserves to be in that pool. Just head over straight to Mr. Laurier's essentials list. That's a really good starting point. And did you use your five C's in evaluating these cards? Was that how they made their way onto the list? How, how did you come about it? Okay, first of all, generally, they have a team that they've been on mm-hmm. in some capacity. Or sometimes it's just that card is the best option if you're going for that strategy. Though, 
to be fair, there are some cards that aren't objectively the best by themselves, but can be used with others to become better. Best example I can give. Uh, remember the old school Loki, rare Loki from Avengers vs. X-Men? Oh, yeah. yeah. You have to field him, you name a card, it can't be fielded. Technically, Blob from X-Men First Class yep. is the same, except he also prevents purchases. Yeah. But there's actually a legit reason to run both of them together. <laughs> so he's on the list. Right. Because you could legitimately run Loki, Joker, and Blob, and your opponent <laughs> suddenly can't field <laughs> anything really out from three of their eight cards. Yeah. Yeah, that's real mean. That's fun. <laughs> so in those cases, when there's a legitimate strategic reason to run it, it goes in. And one thing to keep in mind, we're not just putting the main meta strategies. Because uh-huh. we want to include also cards for things that would be, for example, semi-competitive events. Like, okay, every Thursday, oh yeah, we're running some modern. We're not all going to run Iceman, but mm-hmm. you know what? You'll see some Iceman, but you'll probably see some Golems. Or you might see some Collector. So the Essentials list will give you a wider range to build from, prepare for, and honestly, sometimes... A team can come out of that like semi-competitive landscape and surprise at a major tournament. Oh, for sure. I mean, when you consider the two teams that I think collectively people agreed were the two big dogs in the meta going into Worlds were Iceman and Collector. Mm-hmm. And yet the final of Worlds was Fish Slab versus Green Lantern. Right. You never know how things can end up. So we like to include it from a semi-competitive standpoint as your starting point. It seems like the list could be really helpful, too. For anybody running a Legacy League, this could be really helpful because you've got a good list of other things that might be not top tier, but the next level down as well. And it just can kind of get your creative juices flowing. So definitely go and check this out. I think it's an awesome job. Thank you for doing this. The community thanks you. Oh, glad. I'm glad I'm glad to do this. It's been way too long since I got to it, honestly. I've been meaning to do it, and now we have more people at DM North. So we can actually afford to stagger out some people's articles while someone else takes over. Thank you very much, Kim, for your help. Thank you so much. (laughs) That's greatly appreciated. Yeah, thanks, Kim. All right, let's move on to a part of the show we like to call Shenanigans and Shillelaghs. And we have our guests talk about a couple of their favorite combat tricks or other sneaky techniques they like to use. So have at them. Okay, I want to talk about two of them. Great. One, and that was a team I did once, but it was so hilarious I want to mention it. <laughs> okay, you know from the Avengers Infinity Campaign box, there's a Loki, you feel them, you get to switch control of characters, right? Yeah. Loki, father of mayhem. You swap a non-Loki <laughs> character die and an opposing character die. So you swap the control of those two. What I would do is I would run the rare Nightwing from the Batman set that can't attack or block unless you have either a villain or a Batman character, depending right. on which side of the card he's on. I'd just flip him to whichever side I know would be useless to my opponent. <laughs> would do the trick. And <laughs> right. I'd have the Rare Absorbing Man so that I could do it twice. Oh, and I attack you with stuff. You can't block with that Nightwing. <laughs> oh, isn't that funny? That Nightwing has pretty decent attack stats. Here, right. let me use the Splinter's Teachings global. So that I take... The, not only do yeah. I give you a useless character, but I take that character's attack for myself. Yeah. Oh, that's me. That's really fun. Okay, cool. Yeah, so that kind of shenanigans, I love doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's really fun. My opponents don't necessarily love it. That's, <laughs> and that's mildly unfortunate. But uh, yeah, I... I oh, you gotta, you gotta appreciate it when it happens to you. you know? <laughs> that's all. And... One of the shenanigans I really like to use, another one, the Arch Nemesis Global. Yusha Lucan here, stepping in to read the Arch Nemesis Global. Pay a shield, target character die has D equal to its A until the end of turn. Good example. 
I once did a team with Valindra, the super rare Valindra Shadow Mantle, which gives minus one, minus one to opposing non-evil characters. Right. Here, let me swap that attack of your big character <laughs> with my sidekicks. And yep. then use Arch Nemesis. So that because you already have only one attack that's reduced to zero, I give you equal defense to that. Goodbye. <laughs> you are the weakest link. Goodbye. Yeah, oh, that great. was yeah. another fun one. Which again, yep. I will I will link to both the Loki Nightwing shenanigans and to the Valindra build. Like I'll I'll send you both those links. That's yeah, great. I remember I used to just use Arch Nemesis with transfer power and Aunt May because she has zero <laughs> attack. Because like I don't know what you're gonna do, throw a, a dish at you. I don't know. Don't don't question Aunt May's hidden power. Yeah. But, <laughs> but as you were talking about that, I was thinking about people who love to play the Blob. Right. That that combo would just get rid of so many Blobs in the field really quickly. So. Uh... Yeah, really nice. All right, excellent. Thank you. And for our final segment of the show, you know what time it is, Lucan? Uh, is it spoiler time or Hall of Fame? Because we're not doing spoilers today. We're uh, running out of time. We're, we're gonna do. Here we go. As we said earlier, we we love to share the Dice Masters history, and we're asking each guest to nominate and articulate the reasons for said nomination. You know, whether they're best pilot, most creative brewer, best TO, most generous. Could be anything that the guest feels is worthy of a nomination. Anyway, we want them to nominate one person for the Hall of Fame. And the person has to be retired or semi-retired from the game at the stage. So, Mr. Laurier, do you have anybody that you think might be worthy of said nomination? Oh, there are so many. And among retired or semi-retired players, <sighs> that is a hard one. Because, mm -hmm. you know what? I'm going to nominate one of the best pilots I've ever played against. A guy that might never have won a national championship himself, uh -huh. but was a go-to resource for a lot of major competitive players. And he doesn't want me to say his real name usually, so I'll just refer to him at, by his username. Okay. Dracolich. Oh, yes. Yes. Was, I remember for so long, he was the untouchable guy at the top of the history of WizKids leaderboards. We were oh. all like, all we know about Dracolich is that he's Canadian and had a hand in building all those bard teams he with made Mary Riam and Morphing Jar. He made great brewer. But I want to hear it for the horse. So you've played against Mr. Dracolich, right? And, and, and talked many to him and times. had that opportunity, right? Oh, yes. I've played against him many times. Oh, Fantastic great. Fantastic player. I bet. Well, tell us, I'd be, I'm curious because I've always been impressed with his brews. The ones that jump to mind are, of course, the Bard Blitz and the Bard Buzzsaw jump instantly to mind, but I'm sure there's others as well. Uh, tell us about those and tell us about his play style, if possible. You, you know when there's uh, archetypes of players, namely, mm -hmm. you know, Johnny, Spike, Timmy. Right. He's the prototypical Johnny Spike. <laughs> right. He wants to do his combo, but he will perfect it to the most optimal, laser-focused build that you can do, and he will crush you if you're not prepared <laughs> against him. And then, right. on a casual Thursday, he'll just bring out some random stuff that can, oh, hey, I'm going to make a build that's going to focus exclusively on capturing every single character you have. You know, he can <laughs> be that spike that will destroy you competitively, and then the next week he'll just be the goofy player that just goes for the greatest Rube Goldberg machine. Great. He is very nice, but he is a very fierce competitor. Uh -huh. He's the kind of guy that, honestly, had he not shared his brews with others, probably would have gotten a national championship. 
Right. Or maybe even the World's did, Championship had he gone didn't there. Didn't he win nationals once? I'm, I'm, maybe I'm – didn't he win Canadian Nats one year? I'm, I'm, maybe I'm wrong in that. I feel like maybe I was just so impressed with his bruise that I felt like he did. But I don't believe he did. Okay. He came close. He got top two finishes, I think, twice. Okay. Including in 2018 where Ben stopped him with a uh, dragon build. Okay. Which was, I think, his last major tournament. So he came close, but I don't think he ever won a nationals. He won WKOs, though, plenty of those. Right. Okay, maybe that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, I remember every year at Worlds, we'd check on, like, Canadians here, Dracolich guy, is he around? Just just, kind of wondering very innocently. (laughs) Well, that's great. What a great nomination. That's, 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 That's wonderful. I was wondering how long it would take before we heard his name uttered on this show. So I'm glad you've said it. Well... He deserves it, so that's all I'll say on that. Well, we've come to that time in the show where we should let you get to bed and catch the final score of, of this game. <laughs> oh, no worries. <laughs> Again, thank you for, for taking so much time. Before we let you sign off, is there we always give somebody a last chance to plug their site or say whatever last words you'd like. Well, thank you again for having me. And to everyone listening, please feel free to check out our blog at DM North, which is www.dm.com dm-north.com Awesome. That is the blog where myself, Jordo, and now we have four other people. Okay, there's there's Gord, son of L, there's Jocelyn, there's Kim, and there's Reg. We have a big team of creators. We also have a YouTube channel as well that you can access from our website. We have monthly tournaments called Team of the Month. There's lots of content for you to check out. Feel free to join us. We don't bite, I promise. <laughs> it's true. And there's tons of other great resources. So go check it out. DM North, everybody. Thank you, Mr. Laurier. I really, really appreciate it. Hey, thank you again. Well, that was like a satisfying Thanksgiving dinner. A cornucopia of Dice Master's info, if you will. Yeah, I'll be happily sleeping it off in the corner over here. <laughs> well, keep a half an eye open because there's a lot on the near horizon. Remember, December 18th. D&D Waterdeep drops here in North America. Yeah, I'm fired up for that. (laughs) Yep, and I've got this coverage from the European Open that I want to get out to the masses, so keep an eye peeled for that, too. When I get back from Rome next week, I'll put that in the oven. I can't wait to hear that delicious goodness. (laughs) So until then... Arrivederci. Agaslangafoll! Well, that's the end of Turn 5, my friends, and it's time for the final clear. We hoped you enjoyed today's show. You can find us at rollinthunder.xyz, without a G or an apostrophe, where you'll discover all the links necessary to listen or subscribe to the show. You can also reach us by email at arge or lucan at rollinthunder.xyz. Our theme music was created by Jesse Weiner. We're in no way affiliated with WizKids, other than we love and celebrate the game of Dice Masters. So keep on rolling, August Narlagajia the Lao. We'll be talking again in two weeks' time with another guest. So stay tuned, enough said.